Our text this morning will be John chapter 19, verses 7 to 16. This is the day of the crucifixion. This is Jesus still there before Pilate. Uh, we have seen that Pilate has been making uh, efforts to try to have Jesus released. Uh, he is going to do that again in our text this morning. He understands that Jesus has been handed over out of envy. He is not an insurrectionist. He is not what the Jews are claiming that he is. And Pilate is actually going to perhaps get a little bit more understanding of the accusation of the Jews. Um, but there's a lot that is, that is here in our passage that is, is very helpful for us, of course, not only to see what it is that Jesus is enduring and what Jesus says about this whole ordeal itself, but also the words that Jesus speaks about the per, uh, pertaining to the government of that day, the leading authorities of that day, the governing authorities. There is some great instruction here uh, for us in our own day concerning this very topic uh, that we can absolutely glean from this passage. But there's also some other things that are going, in, going on in this passage about how you have a man who is going to cower to the crowds, even though he understands what is right. He understands what the right thing is to do, but he chooses not to in giving in to the wickedness of the crowd. You know, it doesn't take a strong person at all to give in to what people are demanding. If it's, if it's something that is going on in our own day, which there are many things that we can point to of how the culture demands certain responses from believers rather than standing firm on the truth. And many professing believers give in, knowing otherwise. If we know what is right, then that is what we do. We do what is right before the Lord, and we stand firm on what is right before the Lord. We don't uh, cower. We don't give up truth. As one theologian said, let us never be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. For there is no peace when you abandon truth. Not really. We do what is right, regardless of the consequences that may come thereafter. And we, we rely and trust upon the Lord and have confidence that he knows what he is doing. These situations that come upon us in our very lives or in the life of the nation are things that God himself has ordained to be. And, they, and, and we need to recognize that first and, and therefore have confidence in the Lord and trust in the Lord uh, to get us through the difficult circumstances, depending on what the situation is. So there's a lot of things in this passage that can really help us in our own day. For when we look at the nation itself, we see corruption. We see all kinds of things like that that, that tend to anger us, and rightly so, because uh, when, you, when you see injustice being done or you see things that are going on that are blatantly against the Word of God, it tends to bring up those emotions in us. But there is a right response that we should have. There is a right response that honors God instead of bringing reproach upon God. Because these same people are looking at believers and just desiring to have any accusation to bring against them, to bring against us. So there is a right response. There is the, the, the reality of submitting to the governing authorities as they are ordained by God. But there are limits to that as well. 
And so we're going to go over some of those things as we look at our passage today. Once again, seeing the glory and the honor of Christ before us as our sovereign king who is getting ready to lay down his life. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. And we will read verses 7 to 16. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at, at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew is Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we come into your presence this morning. Father, desiring that the Spirit of God would give us understanding of this passage. To help us see the reality of it, the significance of it, that we would carry out the very things that we learn from it. And we can only do that by the Holy Spirit of God whom you've granted to us. So I pray, Father, you would help to clear our minds and to focus upon you and your word. And that our hearts would be receptive, Father, to, to what your word commands of us. Father, give us understanding and may you be glorified in your people this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so Pilate has made efforts previous to this uh, to try to get Jesus released, to try to satisfy the bloodlust of, of the crowds who are wanting Pilate to crucify him. He had Jesus scourged. And we had talked about how there were three different kinds of scourging that you could receive. One was kind of a lighter uh, punishment, as more as a warning. Then you had the second one that was more severe. And then the third, which would be the most severe, which would be the preparation for crucifixion. And we had talked about how seeing as, seeing as, as Pilate is trying to have Jesus released and not to crucify him, that most likely the scourging that Jesus received at this point was either the first or the second. It was not time for him to be uh, condemned by Pilate. Pilate is making efforts to release him. And so to give him the third and most severe punishment, which men often died from, 
would not be in accordance with what Pilate is trying to do at this particular point. This will come, and we will see perhaps uh, some time frame there in which this could have taken place as we work our way through this. But at this point, Pilate understands that Jesus is innocent. He has come out and said a number of times, I find no fault in him. He found no fault in him. Uh, the Jews couldn't even bring any, any serious accusations against him. They couldn't come up with anything. And we talked about how it is setting forth before us, even from the testimony of enemies of Jesus, of his righteousness, of his perfection, of his innocence, which is very, uh, very significant, of course, when we talk about the spotless lamb of God who gives his life in place of sinners. The one who knew no sin became sin. So Pilate goes out to the crowd again. He brings Jesus out. He is, he is showing that Jesus is of no threat. He is, he is bringing Jesus out. He is clothed with the robe. He has the crown of thorns on his head. He says, behold the man. Look at him. And instead of looking at him and having pity on him because of the beating that he endured or the mockery of what is happening to him, and what has happened to him, seeing no threat in him. Instead, the Jews do the very thing that Pilate says. They look at him and they say, crucify him. We want him dead. We want him gone. But you see the true nature of their accusations towards Jesus here in this passage. Because Pilate uh, throws out this whole accusation that he is forbidding taxes to Caesar and he is causing sedition and all of this. These are the very things that they had said to Pilate. If you go back to Luke chapter 23, Pilate isn't buying into this. The scriptures also tell us that he knew that they had brought him out of envy. They were jealous of him. This was their chance, though. This was the moment in which they have brought him before Pilate. He's been scourged thus far. They have to, they have to go further. They have to, they have to keep on with what they had planned to do to get rid of this man. So when Pilate comes out and he says, I find no guilt in him. In verse 7, you see the true nature of the accusations uh, towards Jesus. The Jews answered Pilate and they say to him, we have a law that this man ought to die. He should die because he has blasphemed in our eyes because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now, if we look at the meaning of this title, the son of God, we understand that this is not an inferior title to God. Because when Jesus had said that he was the son of God, they took up stones to stone him. And they said to him, we are stoning you because you made yourself out to be equal with God. They knew that this title was given in a way that Jesus was equal with God. And so this is what they bring up before Pilate. Now he should die because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be equal with God. And so by our law, he should die. So this is the true nature of everything coming out. This is really a theological situation here that Pilate would have no part of had they brought it before him to begin with. This isn't a political situation as they made it out to be. This is them doing, again, what we've been talking about. Anything that is necessary to try to bring Jesus to, to Pilate to have him crucified. This is a theological issue that Pilate is now being made aware of. But it was something that Pilate himself, upon hearing this, the text tells us that he became even more afraid. Now, why would he become more afraid just because a man claimed to be the son of God? Well, 
if you go back and you look at the interaction of Jesus and Pilate within the other Gospels, Pilate marvels at Jesus. There's something different about him. As the Jews are bringing accusations against him and he says to Jesus, you, you don't respond? And Jesus didn't say anything. And Pilate marvels at him because of his calmness, because of the disposition of, 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 of Christ in, in this time in which most men would be begging, please do something. It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus at this particular time. And so Pilate had already marveled at him that maybe there's something different about this man. And then to hear the accusation that he's claiming to be the son of God, then Pilate becomes even more afraid. Most likely, as some theologians would, uh, would, would say, that Pilate was probably a typical Roman, a superstitious man who, if you look at the Romans, they adopted the Greek pantheon of gods, and that's what they believed. And so within the mythology of, of the Greek and Roman gods, you have men who were sons of God and all of this sort of thing. And so Pilate, upon hearing this, becomes even more afraid. What if I just had a son of God scourged? What, what's going to happen now? And so he goes back into the praetorium with Jesus, and then he begins to ask him, some more questions. Where are you from? Now, he would have known, most likely, at least in the accusation, that uh, he's from Nazareth. Because the particular plaque that is put above Jesus uh, when he is crucified is going to be Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. He knows where he's from. But that's not what he's asking. He wants to know a little bit more into the depth of the, of the person, of who he is. They're saying you're the son of God. Where are you from? Where did you originate from? Those are the things that he is asking because he's more afraid now of perhaps the identity of this man that is standing before him. You know, the irony of this is, is that you have... The Jews that are coming before Pilate and saying he needs to die because he claims to be the son of God. And we being the readers, we understand the significance of that very title that they're using, even though they don't believe it. Perhaps Pilate doesn't believe it. And yet the very thing that they're saying of him is actually true. When Pilate says to them again, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. Uh, that's more of, of, of John's irony. We, we know he is the king. He really is. This is his identity. But you notice something here whenever he's talking with Pilate. He doesn't answer him concerning his nature or concerning his person, concerning where he's actually from. And perhaps Jesus doesn't do so because he understands or he doesn't want to allow Pilate to try to mingle in the truth of who he is, being God in the flesh with any of the mythology of the Greeks and the Romans. Not even going to answer any of that because you're not going to get it. In your fallen state, according to your own superstitions, you're not going to understand. And it would probably even fuel uh, further along Pilate's sin, if you will. You know, there's times in which Jesus didn't reveal who he was for that very purpose. That he spoke in parables. And one, in, in one sense, speaking in parables and not allowing the people to truly understand the nature of his words was a grace of Christ. Because had they truly understood what he was saying and then still rejected him, that would be an even greater sin on their part. And so you have perhaps this going along with Pilate. He's not going to tell Pilate. 
for the very reason of not furthering along in, in his condemnation concerning uh, what Pilate is getting ready to do. But Pilate, getting perhaps a little angry, a little irritated that Jesus still isn't saying anything, he's like, you, you don't speak to me. Don't you know that I have the authority? I can let, I can let you go, or I can crucify you. Tell me who you are. If you're really a god, maybe Pilate would have tried to actually release him regardless of what the crowds had said. So Jesus isn't answering these questions like that. But the very thing that Jesus does say to Pilate is something that, that, is, that is astonishing to look at from, from the whole view of everything. Because you see an innocent man being arrested. He's being beaten. He goes through a mockery of a trial by the Jews. He's going before Pilate. Another, uh, another mockery of justice when you get down to it. He's getting ready to be crucified. And yet, throughout this whole ordeal, this is under the sovereign hand of God. And it's by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God as what the scriptures tell us in the book of Acts. Jesus, I mean, who, who would speak to Pilate in this way at this particular time? You have the opportunity to crucify me. I really don't want you to do that. Uh, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. I'll, I'll do whatever you need. And Jesus looks at him and says, you have no authority over me. Except that which is given to you from above. And you think of the, the, the st that statement. Saying this to Pilate. You have no authority. This is not what most men would say. But this is again showing the resolve of Christ and the calmness of Christ. He intends on going to the cross. That's his purpose. That's where he's going. And yet he still establishes the very truths that everything that is happening is according to the will of his father. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Now, if Pilate didn't really get a straight answer from Jesus concerning his origin or his true identity, there was something in what he said here. You have no authority. You have no power. Now, this is a very interesting word that Jesus uses here when it comes to some of your translations may say power. You have no power over me. You have no authority over me. <clears throat> There's a couple of different words in Scripture that are translated power, like dynamis, which is explosive power. It is might. It's as, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God. It's where we get the word dynamite. You have the other word, which is uh, kratos, which is the power of rule. But Jesus doesn't use this word either. Now, <clears throat> concerning this word, which is the power of rule, which in one sense would be true, Jesus is saying you wouldn't have this power of rule over me unless it has been granted to you. But this is more in a general understanding. James Montgomery Boyce says, Though it can be legitimate, this word, this power of rule, it can also be illegitimate, as in the case of the devil, whose power of death, using that word kratos, whose power of death will someday be taken away by God. 
Kratos gives us the words democracy, plutocracy, monocracy, and others. If Jesus had used either of these words, meaning kratos or dynamis, if Jesus had used either of these words in this sentence, he would have meant only all power of rule comes from God, just as all life comes from him as well. That's really just giving a general uh, idea, a general statement of power. Well, power is ordained by God. Authority is ordained by God. But Jesus isn't using that word. Jesus uses an even stronger word, excusia, which means legitimate authority. He was saying, as one, one writer says, he was saying not only that power in the sense of might comes from God, but that human government is divinely authorized and therefore exercises a rule that must be recognized. That's the implications of the word that Jesus is using in acknowledging and, and recognizing that Pilate has legitimate authority. And that legitimate authority that Pilate has, Jesus is affirming, you wouldn't have unless it was granted to you from above. Unless it was given to you. Now that's important to recognize that the governing authorities are ordained by God. We may not like who is in authority over us, but we have to recognize that reality of things. You think of this. You think of the time in which Jesus lived. There was the corrupt religious leaders that he still paid taxes to. You had Caesar Tiberius, who was a very corrupt and wicked king. And yet, what does Jesus say about paying taxes to him? I wish he would have said otherwise. But he said, render to Caesar what's his. Render to God what's his. But you think of Caesar Tiberius. He was a very cruel man. He was one who, uh, at his particular place, he didn't stay in Rome. He stayed uh, elsewhere. And um, looking back at history, as far as what history would say of him, not only was he cruel and was he a murderer, but he was also a pedophile. And after he would get done doing whatever he wanted to the kids that would be brought, he would have them thrown over the cliff. He was a very cruel and evil, wicked man. And yet, we don't really hear anything else concerning uh, any of these things that are going on as far as rebellion or insurrection or any of these things to cast off the particular governing authorities at the time. You know, when Paul is writing Romans and, and Paul is saying in Romans 13 to submit to yourselves, uh, submit to the governing authorities, who's in power? It's going to be Nero, eventually, under whose reign Paul is going to be taken to Rome and he's going to be beheaded. <clears throat> now, we'll get into more of that later, but this is significant of what Jesus is saying here. He's recognizing a legitimate authority by Pilate. And it's not contingent upon Pilate making the right choice. Because we know Pilate's going to make the wrong choice. And yet that truth is still there. The reality of it is still there. 
Now, even, you know, as, as Calvin would say, that, that when the Lord raises up wicked men to rule, that he is judging the nation or he is judging the unregenerate. That is something to keep in mind as well, especially when we look at our own day. As many of us have talked before, when we look at our own day and our own nation, you see Romans 1 right there. And when you're looking at Romans 1, that is a judgment of God upon a nation. But you know what Jesus doesn't do? Jesus doesn't cower to Pilate. He stands firm on what he knows to be true according to the will of his Father and willing to take the consequences that he knows are coming for the very reason that it is ordained that this happened the way that it is. But he says something even more interesting as well. Not only that all rule and authority comes from above, that God is the one who is ultimately uh, exercising his, his kingship and his reign over all the nations of the earth. Everything is being done according to the plan of God. But he does make this statement too, that for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You know, we wonder sometimes, is there degrees of punishment in hell? And the, when you're looking at passages like this, the answer is yes, there, 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 there are. When you look at what Jesus says to some of the cities, he says, you know, woe to, your, woe to you, uh, Capernaum and, and, and Chorazin, for if the miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah that were done in you, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than for you. And what Jesus is saying here on an individual level is perhaps Pilate is afraid, he's scared, what if I have had... Uh, scourged and mocked a son of God. And Jesus says, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Caiaphas does. Annas does. The religious leaders, the chief priests, they have the greater sin because they're the ones that had all the covenants. They're the ones that had the, the, the word of God. They're the ones who actually saw or heard uh, from, from many witnesses of the things that Jesus had done. The miracles that he performed and they acknowledged that they were true miracles. And still, knowing better, they hand him over. They want him dead. Pilate doesn't know these things. Pilate is, you could say in one sense, is ignorant concerning the true nature of Christ. Otherwise, he wouldn't have asked him, where are you from? For if he had heard the very things that the Jews had heard, he would have known that Jesus had claimed a number of times that he was from above. Pilate's sin is not as great as those who knew better and did the opposite. Their condemnation is, is a greater one on the day of judgment. Because it's, it's as if you have a scenario here, and literally they actually did it. They spat in the face of the Son of God. You have Nicodemus said to come to Jesus by night and had even said to Jesus, we know that you're from God for no one can do the things that you do unless God had sent him. And he is part of the religious leaders of Israel. So it's not as if this was his own opinion. It had to be the opinion of many others too that would eventually condemn him. 
And so there is degrees of sin. There is a, a greater condemnation for those who know better and do the opposite. That's one reason, as some of our um, professors at Graham would say, you know, whenever you, you give the gospel to someone and they reject, that they would tell them, you understand everything I said. Yes, yes, I understand it. And, and you, still, you still won't believe. And so they were compelled then to say, you need to understand because of this that your condemnation will be greater. Because they knew, they heard, they understood, and they still rejected. And this is this whole this this whole thing of, of degrees of punishment in hell and greater condemnation for others, this is this is not just some arbitrary thing. This is something that the righteous judge renders to every man according to their deeds. This is, this is righteous condemnation, that he doesn't just give uh, the same punishment across the board, but that each individual receives their just condemnation, for that is right, that is just, and our God is a just God. And so that's why Jesus says, the one who delivered me to you has the greater condemnation. They knew better, they did the opposite, their judgment will be greater. Now, Pilate's still going to try to make efforts to release him. That's what we read. In verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So, Pilate's mentor, uh, I apologize, I can't remember the name of the man, was actually pretty close to Caesar. He was actually a friend of Tiberius. But what ended up happening was in AD 31, this particular man was executed by Tiberius. His mentor, and this is probably just a couple years earlier than, than everything that's happening here, his mentor had just been killed and, and, and executed by Tiberius because Tiberius being a cruel man, being one who... Uh, always was on the lookout for people who supposedly was trying to overthrow him, all of this. He was very suspicious of everyone. So he had his mentor killed. And so the, the very thing that you wanted to be was a friend of Caesar. Because if you were not, then your life would be threatened. And so here's the Jews. Pilate's trying to make efforts to release him, and the Jews say... This is, this is a title that many perhaps had in that day. It was a title that would be from that, that time on, at least in some of the other writings of historians, that they would be, men would be regarded as a friend of Caesar. And so the Jews are saying to Pilate, if you do this, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. What are they doing? They are threatening him. And Pilate had already said, Pilate had already been in trouble earlier with Tiberius. Because the Jews had sent word to him about something else that had happened. And so here the Jews are saying, if you don't do this, we're going we're gonna to write to Caesar. And we're going to tell him, perhaps, what you can glean from that. Because they say, uh, you know, anyone who opposes Caesar, who makes himself out to be a king, opposes Caesar. So perhaps they were intending on writing to Caesar and saying, this... This governor of yours 
allowed a man who was causing insurrection here in Israel, who made himself out to be a king, he let him go. So what's that going to do in the mind of Tiberius? Cause even greater suspicion. Is Pilate going to ally himself with this other guy who's trying to be king against me? So Pilate would have to go. He would probably be executed um, just as, as his mentor was. So this is the very thing that sealed the deal. Pilate gives in to the crowd. He submits to their desires and their wants. So therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sits down on the judgment seat. And this is referred to as the preparation day of the Passover. And we talked about that as well, the preparation day of the Passover. The Passover was eaten the night before as the other... um, other gospels affirm to us Jesus actually ate the Passover with his disciples the night before. This is the first day of unleavened bread. This is the day in which um, the, another uh, convocation will be held and all of that. And it's also the day before the Sabbath. The prep- this, this wording here of the preparation for the Passover is just acknowledging that this is the preparation day for the Sabbath, the week of the Passover. That's all it's saying. It's about the sixth hour. Now, there's some, <clears throat> some various views on that as well, because uh, just to give you a little footnote on, footnote on that, um, Mark says that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which would be around 9 o'clock, according to Jewish time. And yet you have John, who's writing and saying that Jesus was before Pilate at the sixth hour. Like, so how can that be? But... If we remember that John is not just writing solely to a Jewish audience, and and actually tradition would say that John is in Ephesus after he was released from Patmos. He's in Ephesus, and he writes the Gospel of John. So he is writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to a Roman audience. And so many theologians would say that he's probably using more Roman time than he is Jewish time. So this would be around 6 in the morning, according to Roman time. So if this is around 6 in the morning, according to Roman time, he's not going to be crucified for another three hours. Pilate is going to give him over to be crucified, which would give plenty of time in there for Jesus to be beaten once again, scourged with the cat of nine tails, the most severe, in order to prepare him for crucifixion. But before that happens, Pilate sits down on the judgment seat. He brings out Jesus. He says, Behold your king! And here's where they seal the deal for themselves. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now, Israel was ruled primarily as as a theocracy. Every king that that had risen up in Israel was to be ruling and reigning according to the commands of Scripture, according to the law of God. They still recognize the authority of God regardless of who was the king. And here, these Jews are saying something that would be uh, just appalling to any other generation before them. We have no king but this pagan king that is above us. That's our king. And by doing so, they made a full rejection of, of the Lord. 
not only because they have rejected his son, and that's the thing about it. You reject the son of God, you're rejecting God the Father. There is no middle ground there. But not only are they doing that blatantly rejecting Christ, but they have rejected the authority of God over them. We have no king but Caesar. That would have been unheard of for any, any Jew to have made, for any Israelite to have made about a pagan king that was ruling over them. But again, in the darkness of their hearts, everything is coming forth. That which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man, right? So the darkness of their hearts are being seen throughout everything that they're saying and every action that they're doing of how fallen that they are, how alienated from God that they truly are, which is the natural state of man coming forth. We have no king but Caesar. They don't say what Jesus did. They don't say we have to abide by your law for right now, but God is really our king. No. We have no king but Caesar. So then he hands them over to them to be crucified. Everything's done. They have threatened him enough that he is willing now to succumb to whatever their desires are so that he doesn't get in trouble with Caesar Tiberius, that his life would not be put in jeopardy. He's given up. He caters to them. He knows what the right thing to do is, but he's not willing to do it because of it being a threat to his own life and his own position as the governor of Judea. And so he hands him over to be crucified. Now, looking at this whole thing here, there are some very important truths that are there, some important realities for us. One, concerning the very, the, the very nature and role of government, that it is ordained by God. We can't get around that. It is ordained by God. And in fact, the, the wording that, that Paul uses carries with it even, even more weight. He says in Romans 13, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, the very thing that Jesus said, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, of, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, you think of when Paul is writing these things. He's not saying that you obey the governing authorities unless they are wicked and vile and they tend to do otherwise. So if Paul is writing 57 AD, he's during the reign of Nero. And he says that. Now, we look at, a, at our own governing authorities and we say, 
you're corrupt, you're corrupt, and you're corrupt, which is by all means very well true for many of them. But does that then mean that we throw off any, any authority that they have over us and then promote anarchy? And the answer to that is no. Even Calvin, during the time of the Reformation, he was, he was afraid of this very thing of, of anarchy arising. And so he even writes about those who are wicked rulers of still abiding by the things that are, that are lawful for the citizens to abide by. That are lawful. Meaning in agreement with scripture. They may be corrupt. They may be wicked. But we are to do the very things that are required of us as citizens of this particular nation that are lawful. You think of a number of different examples, but one in particular that really stands out because we had went through it on Wednesday night was Daniel. You have Daniel that is, that is a slave. He is a captive. He is serving not only Nebuchadnezzar, he serves the Persian kings that come after him. And he, as he is put in authority, in places of authority, the, the, the passages in Daniel even tell us that there was nothing, because the other men were jealous of him, there was nothing that they could find that Daniel had done in order to, to, to do, do any harm to the king. He did everything that was required of him. And when he speaks to the king, he speaks with respect, just as Jesus did to Pilate. You know, he, when, when you have King Darius, who gives the edict, you're not supposed to pray to anyone, blah, blah, blah. And Daniel goes ahead and pray because this is what God had commanded for his people to do. And then the king throws him into the lion's den. He didn't want to, but he had made the law, so he had to do it. And when the king comes to Daniel in the, in the morning, the, the morning after, he, does, he, he calls in and he says, Daniel, are you still alive? And Daniel doesn't say, you idiot king. I cannot believe you put me into this place of lions. He says, oh, king, live forever. God has shut the mouths of the lions and they've not hurt me. When you have the Apostle Paul who stands before uh, Herod and he stands before uh, Festus and Felix. The titles that he uses, most excellent Felix, most excellent Festus, and he gives his defense. There is a way in which we should be uh, toward the governing authorities that we do not bring reproach upon Christ. We are to be model citizens of whatever nation that we live in. Because the higher authority is God. And we recognize if God has ordained this particular government. Or the system of government or whatever. That to resist it is to resist him. And so we are model citizens. We do the things that are lawful for us to do. Until the government either says you cannot do this which God commands. Or you should do this which God prohibits. And in that, then we go back again to the example of Daniel. No prayers are to be given to any God. And Daniel says, I'm going to be praying to my God. Because that's right. Or when you have the apostles who are before the religious leaders, 
Don't be preaching Christ. Be quiet. You judging yourselves, is it better for us to listen to you or listen to God? And he says, we're going to obey God. We're going to obey God rather than men. And so there are times in which their authority over us is absolutely limited whenever they do something or say something or command something that violates the scripture. And when they violate the word of God or they try to interfere into the sphere of the church, that's when we resist. In those instances, we may not like what our government is doing. We may not like paying taxes and whatever our taxes go to. But you go back to the example of Christ. You render to Caesar what's his. Who, I mean, there was absolute corruption going on at the time. And what does Jesus say? Pay your taxes. That's what Paul says too in Romans 13. Pay your taxes. Submit to the governing authorities. Until. Until they violate the commands of God. And then they have no authority. Because the greater authority says, this is what we should be doing. You know, back in the 1930s, there was, of course, the Nazi regime that was coming up in Germany and all of that. <clears throat> you had a number of pastors that were giving in to whatever the demands were of, of the Nazis. And the Nazis had sent out a number of different laws or made a number of different laws that you're not to have anything to do with Jews. You're not to be friends with them. You're not to assist them or any of this other stuff. And so you had one particular pastor who was still preaching against the evils of the Nazi regime. So he was arrested. He was put in jail. A friend of his, who was also a minister, had come and had said to him, you know, if, if you just be silent on the things that they're telling you to be silent on, you can get out of here. Why are you in jail? And the friend, the minister that was in jail, looked at his friend and said, why aren't you in jail? You should be here too. Because we don't cater to what they want us to do. We do exactly what God has said for us to do. And in times like that, that's a great, that's a great test for the people of God. Are you going to fear those who can kill the body but not the soul? Or are you going to fear those who can both destroy body and soul in hell? Which one are you going to fear? Which one will you serve? That's really much of the, the question there. Are you going to give in and be as the culture wants you to be on a number of different subjects and topics? Or are you going to stand firm and have a greater reverence for God than for any particular earthly man or woman? We must do what is right. But here's, here's another key element of this too. Is that it is not enough to just desire to do what is right. You must know what is right. You can't just desire, I want to do what's right by the Lord. But you must, you must know what that is. And so that's where we, we, we seek the scripture to give us an understanding. What is right by you? What is the right thing? How am I to respond to to this one or to that one or this authority or that authority. And you be model citizens until they violate a command of God. And you pray for them too. That's what Paul tells Timothy. 
Let prayers be made on behalf of kings and all who are in authority, for this is right in the sight of God. So that's what we do. But to know what is right, we must search the scriptures. and We must understand how is it that God wants us to be toward those who may be wicked rulers who are evil. And this is for the purpose not just to, to cower to anyone. Or not to be courageous because you still speak of the evils of the day. You still point out the wrongs of the day. Because that is right. But it must go back to this. What is going to bring God more honor in my life? By my actions and my words. And regardless if that conflicts with how I desire things to be. This is right. So this is what I must do. We must desire to do right. But we must know what that is. And that is given to us in scripture. Now, there are many who bear the name Christian, who are very friendly with the culture, who will absolutely give in to anything and everything because it, it, it causes them to, to be a friend of the culture, a friend of Caesar, if you will. That's why they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, think of this. And just as it was... At this particular time, you had Caiaphas and Annas and the chief priests and scribes over here. And then you have Pilate over here. They're condemning Christ. Pilate's going to condemn him too. But these know better. They have a much more intimate knowledge than what Pilate does. And that's why Jesus says their condemnation will be greater than yours. So let's put a scenario before us. Let's say you have, let's say you have somebody... In, in the LGBT camp over here. And then you have abortionists, people who have had abortions over here. But then you have the people over here who bear the name Christian and minister. Who are in favor of this and who are giving all kinds of approval here. Who has the greater sin? These that are doing what is natural to the flesh to do, which is to oppose God and rebel against him. Or these who know better. Who claim the name Christ who give hearty approval to it all, who has the greater sin. You know, Paul Washer had said, on the day of judgment, if you want to fear for somebody, don't fear for the drunkard, don't fear for the thief, don't fear for the homosexual. If you want to fear for someone, you fear for those that bore the title minister or pastor. Those are the ones that you fear for because those are the ones in our culture that are giving hearty approval to it all. Who are giving in. Who are no better than the religious leaders of Christ's day. Because everything that is happening is in opposition to the very law of God. Which is in opposition to the character of God. Of the nature of God. They are they're trying to tear the fetters of, of, of the Lord from them. And they're claiming to represent him. Their condemnation will be greater. Their judgment will be greater. But for those who know the Lord, who are truly converted, it must be that we do what is right. By the scripture, because we know the scripture, what we do in the scripture is right before God. That's why we, we emphasize, what does the scripture say? And let us do that. 
Our feelings uh, sometimes can get the better of us. But it really comes back down to this. Lord, you have ordained all things. You have ordained the governing authorities. So I'm going to be as best as I can, as Paul says, live peaceably if possible. I'm going to live peaceably and I'm going to be a model citizen because that is right in your eyes. And I'm going to pray for the king even though I may not like him. But you think of this too. Let me just throw this out here. For, for a lot of those folks, we look at them and they just stir up a lot of anger and aggression. But what if, what if, that in our time of prayer for them, not, not the prayer that, <laughs> that I heard so much before, not the prayer of let their days be few and let another take a place. But how about the prayer of, O Lord, glorify yourself in them by converting their heart. Because you think of those particular ones that are out front. What if the Lord was to convert them? What kind of an impact would that be on everybody else? That's what we should be praying for. Trying to keep ourselves in check as best we can. We all fail at it. All of us do. You know, the, the day of the elections and the day thereafter, you know, I did like, like many of us did. I'm on the computer. Who won that? You know, please, please let them take over. You know, I did that too. And there, there are times that you have to just, okay, I got to come back to what I know to be true, that God is the sovereign ruler. And so I must entrust myself to him. I must entrust my family to him, our future to him. I must trust and be confident. Oh, Lord, you've declared the end from the beginning. Oh, Lord, you know everything that's getting ready to happen. And I know that he's going to do whatever is necessary to bring him the greatest amount of glory. And so in that, I can rest. And that's hard for any of us to do. But it's something that we must work at doing. I haven't figured it out yet. The only thing I know to do is when I get angry, I have to go back to Scripture. Help me. <laughs> That's all any of us can do. Oh, Lord, please help me. Let me not say something dumb. Let me not say anything that's going to bring reproach upon you. Let me always go back to what I know to be true. You rule over the nations. So there's a number of things there for us. Not to give in to culture to do what is right, and to trust in the Lord as Christ himself did in this, in this time of his, of his earthly life. Peter says that when he was being oppressed, he did not utter any, any reviles in return, but he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. And that's what we have to do too. We have to get to that point. We have to strive for that and, and do our best. As imperfect as it will be, to do our best, to try to keep ourselves in check. To always have as our motivation, let me glorify you and not bring dishonor to you. So next Lord's Day, we will continue on and we will see uh, the crucifixion itself and all that is encompassed in that. So if you would, uh, please stand with me.
and we will pray together and we will take of the Lord's Supper. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Oh, Father, we, we fail often at this. We allow our, our zealousness for you and your truth to sometimes lead us into areas that were not meant for us. And it really, much of it comes down to how the unbelieving, how the unregenerate make a mockery of you. Make a mockery of your word or your law. And it stirs within us. And it causes sinful, sinful thoughts and sinful emotions in us. And Father, we know that you don't need us to defend you. For you laugh at the nations in their rebellion. And we know that whenever you rise up against them, what great terror will grip their hearts. Father, help us help us do what is right, to know what that is, that you would be honored in our life. That none could bring accusations against us or bring accusations against you because of us. Help us, Lord. We need you every moment, especially now at this time in our nation. Father, let us share the gospel. Use us in order to bring others into the kingdom. May our prayers, Father, go before you and be part of the means in which you convert the hearts of, of your enemies. You can do all things. Nothing is impossible with you. And we know, Father, that you have your plan. And it will not be thwarted by anything that any unregenerate, evil regime, people, whatever. None can thwart your hand. Let us rest in these truths. Let us have peace in our hearts regarding these very realities. Be glorified in this, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.